Good morning. Today's scripture is Acts 1, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know time or season that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of the sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Christian story is a story of hope, and uh, what makes it a story of hope is that it's not just our story, and it's not just the story of the world, but it's actually uh, the story of God. Uh, the amazing claim of the gospel is that in and as the person of Jesus Christ, God has made our story his own. And so between now and Christmas, um, what we're doing is we're, in, we're, we're focusing on hope, but we're getting at hope um, by looking right at Jesus and looking at his story. But we're looking at it in reverse. And so we're starting at the end and we're moving to the beginning. Last week, we looked at his return and his promise to make all things new at his return. And this is a reality uh, for which we wait, and we long for it, and we yearn for it, but we're not there yet. We're people who are on the way. Um, Today, we're looking at a part of Jesus' story uh, for which we don't have to wait. It's the part of his story that is going on right here and right now. Uh, It's a a reality that is true of him, and as we'll see, true for us at this very moment. What's the reality? It's his ascension. His ascension. When's the last time you thought about the ascension of Jesus? It's been a while. Um, We get a a brief account of Jesus' ascension in verse 9 of our passage. Look at verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. See, there it is. That's the ascension. It's just, if you, if you blink, you miss it. It happens so fast. Uh, that's the ascension. Now, uh, the point is not that Jesus is floating around in the sky somewhere, floating in outer space. The point, uh, like, I, I assume, like, there was some kind of physical movement away from the earth, but if you think about it, like, any movement away from the earth is going to look like you're going up. But the, the, the point is, uh, Jesus has... has moved from our space into God's space. You remember in the Bible, heaven is often a a way of talking about God's realm as opposed to uh, our realm. And so so the point is that Jesus is in heaven. 
uh, he's, as the creed says, he is seated at the right hand of God. Um, so it's simple enough, but in this simple event, Jesus ascending to heaven, uh, in this event in the life of Jesus, um, there are all kinds of extraordinary implications. And we'll see that it offers extraordinary hope for us as individuals and for the church and for the whole world. So, so first, the ascension means, family, that there's hope for you. There's hope for you. Uh, there's an old Reformed catechism called the Heidelberg Catechism, and it asks the question, what benefit do we receive from the ascension of Christ into heaven? And one of the ways it answers, or one of the answers it gives is this. Uh, the benefit is that he, Jesus, is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. He's our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. This is the same language that John uses in one of his letters. He writes, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Raise your hand if you sin sometimes. Okay, okay, you're still awake. You're paying attention. That's good. Um, so this is about you. You see, this is about you. When you sin, you have an advocate in heaven. Now, the imagery there is the imagery of a law court. Uh, gosh, I, I've never had to uh, go to court, but some of you have, and we've all watched courtroom dramas on TV, and you know that, like, who's representing you in court makes all the difference in the world. If you have, an, if you have a bad attorney, it's like, that's really bad for you. That means it's not going to go well for you. Uh, if you have a good attorney, if you have someone who represents you well, it's going to go well for you. Um, scripture uses this language to talk about the ascension of Jesus. It also uses other images to get at the same reality. The book of Hebrews, for example, talks about Jesus as a priest representing the people before God. Uh, we read, for example, that Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, and that's a reference to the ascension. He entered heaven itself to appear for us, to appear for us in God's presence. Uh, imagine having a priest whose job it is to represent you before God, but imagine that priest being like no better than you. Huh. That's not good. It's kind of like having a crummy attorney. Uh, <laughs> See, see, both of these images of the law court and the temple are getting at the same reality that the ascended Jesus, who is now in heaven, which is not to say now floating around in outer space, but now in the very presence of God, uh, he is our representative. He is our representative. Now think about that, family. It means that at this very moment, whether you're aware of it or not, you are being represented by none other than Jesus Christ. Your representative is the one on whom the Father looks and says, you remember, uh, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I mean, what that means is that God never takes your life into consideration without also taking into consideration the life of Jesus Christ. It means that Christ really is your life. It means that just as Jesus is the beloved, so you are the beloved. This is how God regards you on your really good days, but it's also how God regards you on your really bad days. You remember um, Athanasius, one of the early church fathers, 
he spoke of Jesus exercising a twofold ministry. He said that Jesus ministered the things of God to humanity. And I think that we, we have no uh, problem thinking about that. We think, yeah, like, we understand that as Christians, if we're supposed to, like, understand who God is, like, Jesus is the representative of God. Jesus is how we know who God is. Athanasian says, yeah, that's one half. He says the other part of Jesus' ministry is that he, um, he's, he speaks the things of humanity to God. Um, he ministers the things of humanity to God. And so often we lose sight of that second aspect of Jesus' ministry. We get that Jesus represents God to us, that Jesus is God's word to us and for us. But what Athanasius saw is that Jesus also represents us to God, that he is, uh, in the truest way, our word to God. That's what it means for him to be the one mediator between God and humanity. That's what it means for him to have this twofold ministry. He's not only God's word to us, but he's our word to God. And that means, family, do you see it? That like, there is hope for you. There is hope for you. Um, Even your response to God is being taken care of by this perfect mediator, this perfect representative, Jesus Christ. So let's look at um, some of, like, let's apply this a little bit. Like, what this means is that um, there is hope for you in your life with God in the face of your sin. All of you raised your hands earlier when I asked if, if you were, uh, if you had sinned recently, if you were sinners. Um, and now, think about it. Like, you don't have to represent yourself. You don't have to represent yourself. When you do sin, when you're tempted to become discouraged, when you're tempted to lose hope, Will you see that you don't have to grovel in guilt? You don't have to to run in fear of condemnation? I mean, you would if you were your own representative, if you were left to advocate for yourself, if you were were left to stick up for yourself and to say, hey, God, uh, like, I'm really sorry, or, or hey, God, I'll do better next time. But see, that position isn't yours anymore. That position has been taken from you. You don't represent yourself before God. Jesus does. And, and what that means is that you are loved and you're forgiven and you're free to move forward in hope even when you sin, even when you sin. So let it fill you with hope for your life with God in the face of your sin. Here's another way you could apply this. Let this fill you with hope in, in your life with God in prayer. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but like my prayer life is really up and down. Like I'll have seasons where it feels really rich, and then I'll move into seasons where it just feels like totally dry. And I'll have seasons where I'm like eager to pray, and I'll have seasons where like prayer is just the last thing to cross my mind. Um, I'll have I'll have times when I just have no idea how to pray. Um, like sometimes my prayer life stinks, and I bet sometimes yours does too. It might be inconsistent. You might have no idea sometimes what to say or how to pray. Um, But you see, Jesus Christ is not only God's word to you. He is your word to God. Um, He is your representative in heaven and family. (laughs) Jesus is really good at praying. He's really good at praying. Um, I've shared this story before, but you remember, uh, it's a story that the Scottish uh, pastor and theologian James Torrance tells 
of encountering an old man uh, who was walking along the beach, and Torrance greeted the man, and the man asked him where he was from, and uh, when Torrance told him that he was a Presbyterian minister from Scotland, the man just started like pouring out his heart to him. One of the reasons that when I'm at the beach, I never tell people <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Presbyterian minister. Um, but anyway, the guy, the guy is pouring out his heart to Torrance, and, and he shared that like after 45 years of marriage, uh, his wife was dying of cancer, and he's, he said to Torrance, like, I've been walking up and down this beach all night, just desperate, because I don't know how to face the future, uh, and I don't know how to face the future without my wife and without any faith. He said, I was raised in the church, but I've drifted away, and now I just I wish I had some faith. I've been trying to pray, but I can't. That's what he, that's what he told Torrance. And, and at that point, I mean, think about all the possible responses. And I'm not saying that Torrance necessarily got the right response. I don't know that there is a right response, but I love what he said. Like, he could have, like, coached this man, exhorted this man to, like, have more faith, to just believe. But instead, he said this. He said, you want to pray. You are trying to pray. But listen, in Jesus Christ, you have someone who is praying for you, someone who is holding on to you, someone who is carrying you, Stop looking to yourself and look to Christ because even in your lack of faith, he is holding on to you. And in Christ, nothing, not doubt nor death, can separate you from the love of God. Rest in his love. I love that. I mean, see, that's what the ascension means for you, that Jesus Christ is your representative in heaven. And so you are forgiven and you are loved and you are free. And when you falter and fail, and you will, you can still hope. Like when your worship falls flat, and it will, you can still hope. When your prayer life stinks, and sometimes it will, you can still have hope. Because um, your standing before God, your relationship with him just doesn't depend on you. You see, it depends on Jesus. So there's hope for you. The ascension means there's also hope for the church. Look at the very opening of our passage. Uh, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to, to, to do and teach. The first book, what's that? Luke, the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, do you remember that? That, um, that Luke and Acts are meant to be a two-volume set. They're both, they have the same author, uh, Luke, and they're both dedicated to the same person, Theophilus. They're meant to go together as this kind of two-volume history of, uh, of Jesus' life. And so we have Luke and we have Acts, and you might think that, that Luke is primarily about what Jesus did, and then Acts is primarily about what the church does. Um, but that's not how Luke sets up the division between these two volumes. Did you catch his use of words? In the first book, in other words, in the Gospel of Luke, he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke's Gospel doesn't deal with everything Jesus did and taught. It deals with only the beginning. It's like in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is just getting started. Um, the point is that the resurrected, ascended Jesus is still very much at work. He's still living and acting and speaking. He doesn't just wind the church up and then set, set us off to run 
on our own. Not at all. He is like with us right here, right now by the power of the Holy Spirit, giving us everything we need. And I wonder if you trust that. I wonder if you trust that. You remember before the ascension, uh, Jesus told his disciples that it was actually to their advantage that he would ascend because he said, I'll send the Holy Spirit. Like somehow it's more advantageous for uh, the church to have Jesus in heaven sending the Holy Spirit than it is to have Jesus walking around with us in, like, in his body here on earth. Now, why would that be? Why would it be more advantageous to us to have Jesus in heaven and sending the Holy Spirit? There might be a lot of reasons. I don't know. But at least one reason, I think, is that before the ascension, Jesus was just as limited as any one of us is in terms of only being in one place at one time, um, his grace only being able to extend to those in his immediate proximity. But now look at verse 8 of our passage. Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, um, now Jesus' reach isn't limited. Uh, It extends to everywhere, to the very ends of the earth. Now Jesus can be present to anyone and everyone. I love what Ben Meyer says. He says, the ascension is not describing Jesus' absence which is how we might tend to think of it. Like he ascended to heaven. That must mean that he's, you know, far off. Like, he's, he's so distant. He's so remote. Ben Meyer says, no, it's not describing Jesus' absence, but rather his sovereign pre- presence throughout all of creation. See, the ascension makes Jesus more present to us, not less. Um, and the reason that Jesus is more present to us, not less, is that uh, he gives us his spirit gives us the Holy Spirit. Um, We get to keep living the story of Jesus because he shares the Holy Spirit with us. The same Spirit that empowered Jesus for all of what he did in his earthly ministry, uh, he now offers to the church, to you and to me. Um, When we lose sight of the Spirit, it's so easy to lose hope. It's so easy to lose hope. We see the work God has called us to, and it seems... Uh, just entirely overwhelming or entirely out of reach. Um, we, we look at the church, and the church's failures just seem too great. We, we, we see the divisions, and they look too deep. Like the gap between the way things are and the way things are supposed to be, it just appears impossibly, impossibly vast. Um, but you see, family, Jesus is the ascended Lord of the church, and he has not left us on our own. Like, he still has so many good things to do in and through his people. I mean, it could be, I don't know, it could be that Jesus is still just getting started. There could be so much more that Jesus wants to do through his people. And so will you let the Spirit, like, just fuel your desire for his coming kingdom and fill your imagination with new possibilities for the future and then empower you to move out? and to set up little signs and little foretastes of God's inbreaking new creation. Again, we remember that hopeful waiting, and so much of hope is about waiting, but hopeful waiting, it's not quietistic, it's not passive. Because the Holy Spirit isn't quietistic. The Holy Spirit isn't passive. 
which isn't to say, and I love that Kelly led us into times of like rich silence. I think like that's so important. It's not to say that the Holy Spirit isn't quiet. The Holy Spirit can be so quiet, like so quiet that sometimes we don't even hear because we're not paying attention. The Holy Spirit can lead us into times of quiet, but it's, all, it's always like purposeful, right? It's not just sitting back and, and waiting. It, it's always for the sake of moving out. Um, I love what Jürgen Moltmann writes. He says, Christian hope causes not rest, but unrest. Not rest, but unrest. Not patience, but impatience. It does not calm the unquiet heart, but is itself this unquiet heart. Those who hope in Christ can no longer put up with reality as it is, but begin to suffer under it to contradict it. Peace with God means conflict with the world, for the goad of the promised future stabs inexorably into the flesh of every unfulfilled present. Man, that's a good sentence. The goad of the promised future stabs inexorably into every unfulfilled present moment. Of course, it's not inevitable that that happens. I mean, that itself, that, that restlessness, that longing for the kingdom, that dissatisfaction with the way things are is itself the gift of the Spirit. So we move out as Jesus' witnesses to work for the coming of God's kingdom. But we do it as the Spirit leads, in step with him. So, Jesus has ascended. He sends his Holy Spirit to fill his people. And so that means that there's, there's hope for you. There's hope for the church. The ascension also means there's hope for the world. Uh, when the biblical authors, and, and when uh, every now and then we'll, we'll recite the Apostles' Creed, and it has that language of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God the Father. When they use that language, you realize that's like highly symbolic language. To be at God's right hand, it's not, I mean, in other words, even though we probably do imagine it, the point is not that like God is seated somewhere and then Jesus is seated right next to him because God doesn't have a body. So it's just, we're dealing with, metaphors and pictures, symbols. To be at God's right hand is a way of talking about a place of privilege and, and power and authority. God's right hand is the way he exercises his rule in the world. It's the way he relates to the world. And so, so whatever is going on at God's right hand, whatever, whatever happens to be there, um, it's like that's what's really going on with God. Whatever you find at God's right hand is what, what's really going on with God himself. And so the question we have to ask is, what does it mean to say that when we look at God's right hand, we see Jesus? When we look at the place of all privilege and power and authority, we don't see raw, unbridled power. What do we see? We see Jesus. We see the one with, we see the one with wounds. Uh, we see the crucified and risen Messiah. We see the one who lived and died for us, who was raised from the dead for us, who now even is praying for us. I love what Karl Barth says about this. He says that Jesus at the right hand of God means that um, the power of God and the grace of God are identical. That's what it means, that Jesus is at the right hand of God. It means that the power of God and the grace of God 
are identical. God's power is gracious power. His grace is powerful grace. It's good news. You know, so often we wonder, like, okay, yeah, Jesus, but what is God really like? What is God really like? And so often the way we, we try to answer that question is by looking at our circumstances. And, and when we do that, like, maybe the most reasonable thing to conclude is that sometimes God is for us and sometimes God is against us. Like, sometimes he's trustworthy and sometimes he's not. Maybe God is divided within himself. Maybe he's, he's for us and against us all at the same time. Or maybe sometimes he loves us and at other times, eh, not so much. Maybe he's care and he's indifference, just all jumbled up and mixed together. Like maybe there's the God we get in Jesus, but then there's this other true, mysterious God back behind Jesus that we have no access to, that we can never really know and therefore never fully trust. I mean, if we look at our circumstances, sometimes maybe we have to conclude there's hope, and sometimes maybe there's no hope at all. And we wonder, don't we? Don't you wonder? Or am I the only one? <laughs> maybe only pastors wonder about this. What is God really like? We, we wonder, what is God really like? Um, Tozer, Tozer writes about this. He says, he, he imagines someone asking this question. Like, if I come to God, how will he act toward me? What kind of disposition will he have? What will I find him to be like? And then Tozer answers the question. The answer is that he will be found to be exactly like Jesus. Exactly like Jesus. See, that is what the ascension means. Uh, that's why it gives such great hope. It tells us that when we deal with God, we are never dealing with anyone other than his right-hand man. That at the helm of the universe is none other than the one who forgives sinners, who feeds multitudes, who um, restores sight to the blind, who clothes, clothes the naked, who calms storms, who, who sets the captives free. I mean, this is the God we're dealing with. We're always dealing with the one who, who welcomes people like you and me to a table of grace and just says, oh, you're a mess. Maybe you had a great week. Maybe you had a horrible week, but you're welcome to come to the table. And so there's hope for you. And there's hope for the church. And there's hope for the world. So let's pray, and we'll eat.